From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. You hear a lot of claims about Colorado's population. Things like, why is everybody moving here? Or, people are fleeing. We get the real picture from the state demographer. We always have these flows. It's just that recently, we've seen the out staying about the same, but the in has started to slow down. One of the big reasons is actually a slowdown in international migration as well during COVID. Then another twist, or maybe it's a turn, in the Tina Peters story. Plus, the days before the world knew about the wonders of Yellowstone. And who would have believed it, right? I mean, cliffs made of glass and water exploding from the ground and boiling mud pots. I mean, it seemed just completely insane. Hi, I'm Jasmine Liddington, and I donated my car to Colorado Public Radio. My car got hit, and ultimately it was totaled. When I realized that the car wasn't going to be fixed or covered, I just decided that what would be a higher purpose for this car, as opposed to parting it out for small amounts of money myself or just getting rid of it, the best decision was to donate it to an organization that I appreciate. It's easy to donate your car at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. You see a lot of -of out-of-state license plates these days. We know high housing prices elsewhere make Colorado attractive. Meanwhile, our own hot housing market drives some folks away. So it can leave you wondering what the true population picture is, which is why we ask the state demographer Elizabeth Garner to join us. Elizabeth, thank you so much for being with us. Ah, thanks for having me again. The latest population numbers for Colorado came out recently. Um, They're broad estimates, not based on a full census, but an annual update. What do they tell us? So really, it's just looking at population change between 2020 and 2021 and really showed this continued slowdown in Colorado's population growth. So we increased by about 30,000 people. Oh, an increase of 30,000 people is a slowdown of growth. Oh, hands down. In the 90s, for example, we were increasing by over 100,000 a year. In a lot of the 2000s, anywhere between 60 and 80,000 a year. So since 2015, we've seen consecutive years of slower and slower growth. Okay, since 2015, the growth has been slowing. But we are not in a position of losing people net Not net for the state as a whole, but it is interesting because we did see in that one year about 60,000 deaths, about 45,000 births, and about 15,000 in net migration. So babies are births, right? Yeah. So if you think about it, we actually had a net decline of about 30,000 folks that are adults. That is to say, if you account for births and deaths, and it sounds like the birth rate is perhaps slowing. Slowing as well. The death rate during COVID increased. Yep. You account for those. We actually did lose people? Adults. Adults. Yes. Okay, that's helpful to understand. So when people are thinking about like the tight labor force, it really actually makes sense that we're feeling this tightness because we've lost adults. Okay, so I have heard some politicians say, 
you know, especially politicians who are not in office and want to be. (laughs) Colorado is a miserable place. It needs fixing. And a lot of people are leaving because of it. Is that accurate? Miserable is really in the in the eyes of the beholder. Right. I guess I'm, yeah. not, I'm um, not asking. Yeah, I'm not um, asking you to characterize their departure. But is it true that they're departing? People do leave. But point is, people always leave. Mm. People always come. People always leave. When we look at flows of migration, often in migration is anywhere between 180 and 230 thousand people a year. And out migration can be anywhere between 150 and 170 thousand a year. Oh. So we always have these flows. It's just that recently we've seen the out staying about the same, but the in has started to slow down. One of the big reasons is actually a slowdown in international migration as well during COVID. Oh, that's fascinating because it wasn't just that the country was less mobile during COVID. The entire world was. Correct. Uh Uh-huh. When I think of international migration... Am I right to think of it as highly skilled? Both ends. You know, I think that's a lot of why we've also felt the tightness in uh, some of the resort communities because they didn't get their share of the international visas Mm -hmm. coming in to fill positions. It's all kinds of work. All across the board, our agricultural workers uh, were also constrained coming in. But then also our high tech and highly qualified, especially from parts of Asia that come in to fill positions or go to school. So across the board, there was a pretty significant impact. This seems to shatter a subtle myth, an understanding I thought I had, which was that the pandemic allowed people to be remote at work. So many of them chose to live in places they loved, even if their company wasn't based there. My sense was that drove a lot of people to move to Colorado because this was their dream location. Did that just not happen then in the numbers that, I don't know, many of us thought they would? So that really gets to this concept of residency. A lot of times people will move and hop from place to place. See, does it work? Right. And especially during 2020, the beginnings of 2021, well, maybe through all the 21 People were trying out different things because they could. Mm. Now in 22, a lot of companies are starting to set guidelines on where people live. And so a lot of the folks that had maybe been up in some of the mountain resort areas had to return to state of origin. Or they're figuring out what that balance is. But a lot of times they stayed in like VRBOs Mm. or whatever, short-term rentals during that time, and they weren't counted. As residents. As a resident. Okay. So it's not that it didn't occur, but it's not going to show up in the actual kind of stable population numbers. Correct. They look like a visitor. How closely are the trends we're seeing connected to the availability and the cost of housing? So you've said that the growth of people coming into the state has slowed. Is that partly because of where they can and can't live? I think there's a connection, absolutely. Um, It's happening across the United States. It definitely happened severely in Colorado during the Great Recession. We stopped building. We went from building about 50,000 new housing units a year to about 10,000. We stayed at low levels during the early 2010s. We didn't start getting back to what we would consider normal levels of construction until probably 2018, 2019. Mm. Then we hit COVID. So, yes, we were behind in housing units. 
That's fascinating. COVID hits even as that rebound was still occurring. That's a long tail. Totally. But if you remember, the Great Recession was wicked and really hit construction firms, financing, and all of the workers that were in those firms. They've left state. They've gone to other states where there was more consistent building. So then Colorado's had to really rebuild an industry. Now, this may have as much to do with interest rates as anything, but we are seeing a bit of an easing in the price of housing. Uh, It's all very relative, of course. Do you see the population trends at least contributing to a cooling off of the housing market? Maybe that's not the state demographer's role to speculate on. (laughs) From the population perspective, yes, we do see less demand in the future. Simply because population is slowing, we're seeing mobility down. Needless to say, in um, just even a short three to five years, we've also got fewer young adults that are going to be aging into apartment demand age groups uh, because we've seen this slowdown in birth since 2007. Mm. Is that true nationwide, by the way? Nationwide. We had an absolute decline of a million people under the age of 18 over the last decade. So then there's going to be fewer workers, fewer Mm. people going into higher ed, fewer people demanding housing. When you look at the period of COVID, say pre-vaccine, you know, really the height of the pandemic, is that a, a mobile time or is that a stationary time? I mean, I think about myself being in lockdown, you know, uh, but I also think back to that narrative of, well, people are reassessing their lives. Can we speak to whether it was a kinetic time or not? Definitely during COVID, we saw mobility slow down across the board. Uh, of actual moves counted as residents. Absolutely. Uh-huh. And it makes sense. People were putting off decision-making. A lot of young adults especially, you know, even if they were hired, they were potentially staying with their parents or in the basement because they weren't sure what was going to happen the next step. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'd mentioned before, international slowed down. Yeah. So definitely mobility slowed even further during COVID. It had been slowing even previous to that because there was just people, less people moving than historical trends. A lot of that has to do with age. I'm just curious then, if there are fewer births, do we then just assume, I guess we just assume the nation and the state is older. Yeah. Yeah. It's amazing. There were uh, 27 states that had an absolute decline in the under 18 population. Over this last year, there were 17 states that had an absolute decline in total population. So we're slowing down simply because of natural decline. So more deaths than births in a lot of states. Elizabeth Garner, state demographer. Is this just the weirdest time in your career? <laughs> I mean, as you've described it, the trends are, I mean, are they unprecedented? So maybe the trends aren't necessarily unprecedented, but people now care more about population and population growth and understanding the dynamics. People are very, you know, especially policymakers are interested. Where are the people? How old are the people? You know, in terms of the healthcare side and emergency management side, there's much more interest in understanding population. I think the biggest 
trends that are impacting things are one is still the continued slowdown in births. Mm -hmm. It was going on pre-COVID, so you wouldn't say that it's unprecedented, but it is very different than what we've seen historically. The work from anywhere is probably also the a big change and makes us wonder what's going to drive population growth in Colorado if people can have a job in Colorado yet live in Kansas, so higher wage, maybe lower cost of living, or they live in Colorado but their job is in Boston. Mm-hmm. Higher wage, lower cost of living. So, but that that is still settling. The dust on that is totally still settling. Still settling to understand what those dynamics are. I think in some areas of the state, the work from anywhere is a double-edged sword. It can certainly help support systems in some of our rural parts of the state where like one partner might have a job locally and then that other partner was like, oh, what do I do? There weren't two job openings. But then that person could have a remote job. Mm. So that's the benefit side. In, in a the, marriage or a couple. The drawback is what happens if both partners take remote jobs and then the local governments or the local communities don't have the labor force locally to fill positions. I mean, it's a challenge, but it is, it's exciting. Uh-huh. <laughs> it's exciting, she said. It's exciting. <laughs> and, and housing, you throw housing on top of that, just lots of different dynamics going on. Thank you so much for being with us. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me again. Elizabeth Garner is Colorado's state demographer. Meanwhile, homelessness in Douglas County has become increasingly visible, and the county's response is stirring controversy with its neighbors. CPR's Andrew Kenny reports. Sheriff Tony Spurlock says Douglas County deputies are just trying to give rides to people who need them. Under a policy introduced this year, if someone's homeless in the county, deputies can offer to take them back to places where they have personal connections or where they can get services and shelter. We are not going to take anybody and kick them out of the car um, and just let them go uh, out into the to the world. We're going to provide them with the best possible resources that we can put together. That includes resources located in other counties where there are far more homeless services than wealthy Douglas County. But leaders in those neighboring jurisdictions are strongly objecting. Aurora Mayor Mike Kaufman says Doug Coe is trying to, quote, dump people in his city and elsewhere. I think this is dumping. I think this is dumping, pure and simple. And I quite frankly think that, that, that it ought to be illegal. About 15 people have taken rides through Douglas County's reintegration program so far. Spurlock says they were all leaving jail and had personal connections elsewhere. But he says the transport program is set to expand to offer rides and other services to people on the streets, not just in jail, and it will offer rides to out-of-county shelters whether or not the person calls that other area home. Kaufman and Denver Mayor Michael Hancock have called on Douglas County to stop the program and create more local services instead. I think they got to face up to the fact that things have changed in Douglas County. Sheriff Spurlock and others have pushed to build Douglas County's first permanent shelter, but so far they faced stiff resistance from residents. That is CPR's Andrew Kenny reporting. When we come back, Mesa County Clerk Tina Peters has trouble staying on a judge's good side. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Numbers tell a story, and they can show how our world is changing and who is most affected. A trend that hit a sobering milestone last year, more than 93,000 people. When numbers are high or low or simply missing, 
there's often a human story to tell. Like, I don't want her to just be a statistic. We need to figure something out and make sure this stops happening. I'm data reporter Veronica Penny from CPR News Investigations. I use data to find and report stories. You can hear them on the radio or see them online with maps, charts, and graphics. Come to CPR.org investigations. Two arrest warrants in the last two weeks. And those are separate from the 10 counts Mesa County Clerk Tina Peters faces for allegedly tampering with election equipment and for other misconduct. From our public affairs team, CPR's Benta Berkland is going to get us up to speed. Hi, Benta. Hi, Ryan. What are those uh, two arrest warrants about? The first from earlier this month didn't actually result in her arrest. It ended up being canceled after a tense court hearing. Peters had violated a condition of her bond by traveling outside of Colorado without the judge's permission. But Peters' attorney took the blame, explaining that he had failed to tell her about the order, barring out-of-state travel, and the prosecution didn't object to the motion to cancel. Still, though, it seemed like the judge was beside himself. Yes, even though Mesa County District Court Judge Matthew um, Barrett canceled the arrest warrant, you know, he said it was incredible and unfathomable that Peter's attorneys hadn't told her she couldn't leave Colorado. Barrett said he'd expect a lawyer to tell their client about a travel prohibition within an hour of getting the order. Mm. Instead, her lead attorney said he didn't get the judge's order for 48 hours because he was in hearings and his assistant was out. Where did Tina Peters travel? She went to Las Vegas to speak at what's called the Constitutional Sheriff and Peace Officers Association. While Peters was in Nevada, she also sent a notarized letter from Clark County requesting a statewide recount for the GOP primary for Secretary of State in Colorado, which she lost. She was one of three candidates vying to challenge the incumbent Democratic Secretary of State Jenna Griswold, and a former Jefferson County clerk Pam Anderson won that Republican primary. Yes, that's right. And Peters doesn't accept the results of that election. Colorado didn't agree to do a statewide hand recount unless Peters would foot the bill. Mm. And that's the practice if the race isn't close. And this was not a close race. Anderson winning with 43 percent of the vote. Peters getting just shy of 29. All right. The first arrest warrant for out-of-state travel has been resolved and uh, she wasn't arrested. Does she still need a court's permission to travel? Uh, Yes. And and by the way, that wasn't the case when she was a candidate for office. She had more leeway and only had to notify the court that she was traveling. But going forward, Peters must get court approval to leave Colorado. And the judge said because she's no longer campaigning, she has less of a reason to travel outside of the state. Peters recently had a request denied and has said she believes she's a political prisoner. To the second arrest warrant, Benta, what's it for? It's tied to a request for a hand recount in the GOP primary. So when the state denied it, Peters emailed counties across Colorado asking them to do a hand recount. That email allegedly violated a restraining order that bars Peters from contacting any employees with the Mesa County Clerk and Recorder's Office. Mm. So the head of the elections division in Mesa County was on that email. And what happened? Peters turned herself into the Pitkin County Sheriff's Office. Uh, she was in custody for about an hour. Then she paid the $1,000 bond and was released. A hearing has not been set on that, and it's not clear if prosecutors will want to take action over the email. What does Peters say? 
She says it was inadvertent that Mesa County was included in this mass email. She's asking her supporters to rally behind her, including financially. And she thinks the arrest warrant over the email amounts to harassment from the courts. And now Peters does have a, a different hearing coming up on the election tampering case. Uh, when is that taking place? That is scheduled for August 5th, and it's her arraignment. So that's where Peters will formally hear the charges against her in court, and Peters will make a plea in the case, guilty or not guilty. And just to underscore, she officially remains Mesa County's clerk. Indeed. Although a judge blocked Peters from overseeing the midterm elections this fall. Thank you so much, Benta. My pleasure, Ryan. Public affairs reporter Benta Berkland bringing us up to speed on the story of indicted Mesa County clerk Tina Peters. Electrify everything. That's one strategy scientists say will combat climate change. It means phasing out natural gas stoves and furnaces, which leak greenhouse gases. Electric appliances, meanwhile, can be powered by renewable energy. But as CPR's Sam Brash found, a rapid shift could bring its own challenges for folks on a tight budget. Hello. Hey, Don. Don Cameron is fixing up his mountain bike when I arrive at his home in Golden, Colorado. I already did 25 miles, and my crank is noisy. Cameron is a former high school science teacher and a current city council member from Golden. His home is ready for the cover of a green living magazine. One side of his front yard is a riot of wildflowers, the other a thriving community garden. My whole life is about living as low an energy life as I can. But his low-energy lifestyle requires a lot of work. Over the last few years, he's replaced all his natural gas appliances, so his home wouldn't be a source of carbon or methane emissions. A rooftop solar array now covers power for his electric stove, his electric water heater, and his electric home heating and cooling. It wasn't a cheap remodel. I'd rather not say on the radio, you know, what the expense was, because you don't do it for the savings. Then he went one step further. Once the work was done, he had Excel Energy cut him off the gas system altogether. I reached out to them on an online form, and within a few weeks, they had it shut off completely to the house. His gas lines are now a couple of metal stubs, and his gas meter is gone. So is a $15 service fee Excel Energy charges each of its gas customers. And here's where the big plan to electrify everything gets complicated. Experts say if rich people ditch natural gas first, less wealthy customers could be left to pay to maintain the system. And so the tricky thing with electrification is that the utility still has to pay for all of that existing gas network and the maintenance on it, even as they're losing customers. This is Catherine Hausman, an energy and environment economist at the University of Michigan. She published a recent paper looking into these dynamics by studying places with declining populations and declining natural gas customers like Birmingham, Alabama. So it's not just a hypothetical. We have good historical evidence that when utilities lose customers, the remaining customers face higher prices. Natural gas companies have made similar claims as they try to combat climate initiatives. Pushed to electrify too quickly, they say, and bills will go up for people least able to pay them. Houseman says there's some truth to the point, but... 
This definitely does not mean electrification is a bad idea. As I said, the end goal is really laudable. It means we need to be careful with how we transition to that goal. And she thinks now is the time to figure that out. A mass exodus from the natural gas system isn't underway yet. In fact, across the country, companies are still adding millions of natural gas customers. It's more like we know that the end goal is to get rid of a lot of natural gas usage. So if we think it's going to be effective for decarbonization, it's got to mean a lot of people leaving the system at some point. She says the question is what would allow for a fair transition? Sherry Billamoria helps manage the Green Buildings Initiative for RMI, an environmental think tank. She agrees a rapid energy transition risks higher bills, but says there are solutions. One could be government or nonprofit programs to electrify entire neighborhoods all at once, something already happening in Massachusetts. Pruning the tree is also a a phrase that is sometimes used, so thinking about it as branches that can be that can be trimmed back in really strategic and thoughtful ways. That way, utilities could forget about whole branches of their systems and maybe charge customers less. Another option is public subsidies, so companies don't raise bills. In any case, Bill Amoria says a first step is simple. Stop building new gas systems. Because we know that all of the new investments are sort of just adding to what will need to get paid off in in those decades in the future. Colorado has taken a quiet, complicated approach to discouraging new natural gas hookups. Deep blue cities like Denver and Boulder have codes and incentives to nudge developers toward all-electric buildings. The state has given gas companies emission targets, but won't prescribe how they get there. Meanwhile, other coastal communities like Berkeley and New York City have taken a more straightforward approach and banned natural gas and new construction. I'm Sam Brash, CPR News. Was Yellowstone where hell bubbled up? That was the rumor floating around 150 years ago until a band of explorers conducted a scientific survey. Not long after, Yellowstone became the world's first national park, with indigenous people being driven out. Author Megan Kate Nelson tells this story in her new book, Saving Yellowstone. Nelson, by the way, grew up in the Denver suburbs. Megan, thank you for being with us. Thanks so much for having me. Let's go back 150 years or so when Congress commissions a scientific expedition to Yellowstone, led by a prominent surveyor and scientist named Ferdinand Hayden. Uh, He takes about three dozen men and sets off from Ogden, Utah in 1871. Let me have you read this description of what they saw as they arrived. The path pitched more steeply upward. As the expedition came over the crest, the men stopped, one by one. Before them rose a huge complex of hot springs, 300 feet high and at least half a mile wide. It looked like a frozen waterfall. It was bright white in places because, as the scientists on Hayden's team would determine later, it was made of travertine, a calcium carbonate rock that is the primary compound in limestone. Hot water, forced to the surface at the top of the structure, made its way down through hundreds of oval pools, pausing briefly in one before dropping to the next. The bacteria and algae living within the pools stained them bright pink, yellow, brown, or red. After gazing upon this marvel, the leader of the 2nd Cavalry Escort, Captain George Taylor, reached into his pocket, groping for his diary so he could record his first impressions. He had left it with the pack train, however, so all he could do was stare. After a moment, Hayden turned to Taylor. 
I have traveled all over the world, he told the soldier. I have been exploring 17 years. I thought I had viewed all the great wonders, Hayden paused, but all sink into insignificance compared with this. Oh, I, I get the impression from that passage that they might have thought this was an otherworldly place. Absolutely. I mean, there were so many rumors about Yellowstone. They referred to it as the Plutonic region. There was a lot of reportage that maybe it was where hell bubbled up. And this was an exciting moment, particularly for Hayden, because no white man had ever seen or reported on this particular feature of Yellowstone, which we now know of as Mammoth Hot Springs, but which they called the White Mountain. And so for him, this was one place in Yellowstone where he was really going to make his mark. And for a man as ambitious as Hayden, uh, that was an important moment. You use this adjective plutonic, meaning of or related to Pluto. In other yeah. words, yeah, in otherworldly terms. But of course, this region was not entirely unknown. Uh, who all had been there before the white man? Well, of course, indigenous peoples had been in and through Yellowstone for thousands of years. Uh, peoples including uh, the Crow and the Shoshone and the Bannock, the Lakota peoples, the Nez Perce from the West um, and the Northern Shoshone. And they had used it as a thoroughfare. They had used it as a ceremonial ground, as a hunting ground, basically in any way that you could use a landscape to subsist yourself. So indigenous peoples had known about Yellowstone. They claimed Yellowstone. It was not given over to one indigenous nation specifically, but a kind of communal shared space. Of course, they all knew about it. And some white trappers um, early in the 19th century also had discovered it, but no one believed any of their tales because, you know, people believed trappers and, and scouts to be just inveterate liars, that oh. they were just telling tall tales around the fire. And, and who would have believed it, right? I mean, cliffs made of glass and water exploding from the ground and boiling mud pots. I mean, it seemed just completely insane. <laughs> Um, this expedition happens at a really pivotal time in the United States, and that's the Reconstruction era after the Civil War. It's just plain fascinating to me that you've decided to focus on the West in Reconstruction because I think of it as such a, a Southern experience. Why is this expedition reflective of Reconstruction, maybe in a way that we wouldn't normally associate with it? Yeah, this was one of the driving questions for me in my research, because once I, I decided to write about Yellowstone for its 150th anniversary, I thought, well, wait a minute, all of this exploration is happening and the preservation of Yellowstone is happening in 1871-72, which is this pivotal moment in Reconstruction, and no one ever talks about that, right? I mean, uh, when we talk about Reconstruction, if we talk about it at all, we are talking about the South uh, for good reason, because you know the nation is trying to come back together after four years of really destructive warfare and huge loss of life. And the major part of that project was bringing the former Confederate states back into the Union and making sure that its 4 million newly emancipated Black Americans could actually claim their new citizenship rights and really transition to a life in freedom. But the federal government was just as invested in controlling the West during Reconstruction as they were in controlling the South. And that's what really interested me uh, in looking at Yellowstone was here's this new place where we can get a real new angle of vision on this moment 
in our history when the federal government is really testing the reach of its power mm. um, all across the nation and trying to bring the country back together. But isn't there an inherent tension then in the freeing of enslaved people in the South? And yet, uh, of course, the subjugation of indigenous people in the West, it's like these this tension in the country. Absolutely. And I think this is the tension that we find today so difficult to reconcile, right? Because we think, oh, well, a political party that is invested in protecting Black civil rights and intent upon really using the power of the federal government to protect those rights if the states fail in that respect, surely they wouldn't turn around and launch campaigns against Native people and try to take their land from them, right? This strikes us as completely contradictory. But in that moment, Republicans who, and it's important to note that the parties were kind of switched at this point from how we know them today. So Republicans uh, were very much invested in the power of the federal government. Uh, They were, at least for a short amount of time, devoted to racial justice in certain aspects. And They were, like most white Americans, um, completely convinced that Native peoples, first of all, were not citizens and probably could never be citizens, and that they were standing in the way of American progress. They were standing in the way of the American dream, which they believe now belong to both white and Black Americans, Mm. right? So they did not see any kind of contradiction in fighting for Black rights, but then also seeking to remove Native people from their homelands, put them on reservations, and then shrink the size of those reservations in order to sell land to both white and Black settlers. So Yellowstone, to some extent, represents destiny, perhaps manifest destiny. Does the Hayden Expedition go to Yellowstone with the notion of preserving it, of, of you know making it a park? Is all that notion of conservation baked into the expedition? Not really, and not from the beginning. I mean, Hayden was definitely a scientist and explorer. uh, And what surveys were, were these expeditions that were federally funded. And they would go out to certain parts of the country that had not yet been mapped. And they would measure distances, they would test water, they would look at resources, they would produce agricultural reports. And the goal of these surveys was really to figure out how this land could best be used. Mm. And so Hayden had that kind of practical job, and that was in fact in his instructions from the Department of the Interior, that he was supposed to figure out uh, how this land could be developed, not only what was in Yellowstone, but if any of it could be mined, um, you know, ranched or farmed. And then he had that other goal in mind, which was to bring Yellowstone really fully into the American scientific arena of knowledge um, so that they could see what was there and fit it into a kind of larger notion of both North America's and then the world's larger geo history. Hmm. Um, so he was interested in the science, but his expedition did not have a conservation purpose uh, in the beginning. Uh, visiting Yellowstone is not great on their boots, is it? 
<laughs> no, especially when you fall in, which Hayden actually did. Uh, at one point in the mud volcano region, uh, he broke through the surface and pretty instantly uh, that geothermal feature really ate up uh, his boots and he ended up walking barefoot back to camp with his pieces of his boots in his hand. I appreciate that the the mission was was scientific. Um, it was cartographic. I think that's the term. It was also artistic. Artists mm. is it artists plural on the Hayden expedition to Yellowstone? Yes, absolutely. And this is one of you know Hayden was a really great manager of men and leader of the expedition. But one of his other talents is he absolutely understood how important visual images are hmm. to communicating to us what's out there kind of in the landscape. And so he had always uh, brought artists along on his surveys with him. In the years before his trip to Yellowstone, he had become friends with William Henry Jackson, a photographer. And photographs were important, right? Because they represented reality. And so he needed Jackson's photos to communicate to all Americans and especially congressmen that they had actually been to Yellowstone and they had seen these things and that they were real. But he also believed in the power of painting and illustration. And so he had two other artists, Henry Elliott, uh, who did these kind of big, long um, sketches of the landscapes and mountain ranges. And then also Thomas Moran, who was sent out to the Hayden survey, uh, actually by Jay Cook and the folks at Scribner's Monthly. Jay Cook was an investment banker uh, who was raising money for the Northern Pacific Railroad. And mm. he too believed in the power of images in advertising. And so he sent Thomas Moran, who was a kind of new painter on the scene in Philadelphia, uh, but who really ended up making his mark in Yellowstone with the production, especially of an enormous canvas, eight feet by 12 feet, um, the Grand Canyon of the Yellowstone, which if uh, your listeners have ever seen an image, a painted image of Yellowstone, that's probably it. That's uh, the lower falls of the Yellowstone. But of course, this notion of like um, imagery to sell potential tourists and investors on the railroad is a, a well-told story in the West and true of much of Colorado in addition to Yellowstone. Yes. And my conversation with author and historian Megan Kate Nelson continues after a break. Her book, Saving Yellowstone, is out as the park celebrates 150 years. Still to come, a look ahead to the impact climate change is already having on this American treasure. You're with Colorado Matters from CPR News. The wife of a wealthy box manufacturer from Chicago trudged up a remote Colorado mountain in 1939, skis in tow. Below her, an old mining town that seemed frozen in time. It made a deep impression, and the next time she came back, she brought her husband to the tiny town of Aspen. Soon after, Elizabeth and Walter Pepke helped found the Aspen Ski Company and built the world's longest chairlift. And their influence on Aspen went even further. In 1949, Walter suggested it as host for one of the celebrations for the 200th birthday of the German philosopher Goethe. Famous thinkers came, and musicians like Arthur Rubinstein. From that event, the Aspen Institute and the Aspen Music Festival and School were born. One was dedicated to exploring complex world problems. The other would, and still does, launch world-class musicians. A Colorado postcard from CPR, with support from Dazzle Jazz in Denver. 
Back now to my interview with historian and author Megan Kate Nelson. In Saving Yellowstone, she writes about an early scientific expedition to the region and its lasting impact on the indigenous people who'd shared the area. What were some of the key scientific discoveries? Like, what what does the Hayden expedition truly add to our understanding of the Earth? Well, they brought back about 45 boxes of specimens. So their scientific study was really quite broad. They did manage to prove that Yellowstone was a caldera, um, a volcanic basin. This is the kind of super volcano that you've probably all heard about that we're all a little worried about. <laughs> is it going to explode anytime soon? Uh, scientists don't think so, but... Oh, Ma- Megan, I have so much else to worry about right now. You've just, I know. <laughs> you've just added to the list. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I know we live in dark times. <laughs> we live in dark times. Um, yes. Yeah, so they definitively proved that that was the origin of Yellowstone and that the whole basin was created in this combination of that volcanic activity and also the power of erosion. And this is a really big debate at the time, sort of how does the earth get formed? Uh, and then they collected all kinds of other specimens, um, minerals, plants, uh, the skins of birds and animals. And they were really trying to create a picture of animal life and botanical life of water resources in the West. So they suspected that Yellowstone was probably the largest geothermal field in the world, and they were correct. They were correct. On that yes, uh, by far, yes. Um, and they knew there were going to be just so many more important scientific studies uh, to be run in Yellowstone. And that turned out to be true as well. I mean, it's one of the most fertile grounds for scientists today who are seeking to understand not only these issues of geology and geothermal power, but also climate change. On the subject of geology, this also turns out to be a seismic shift (laughs) uh, in in the history of Native Americans in this country and how, frankly, they are treated by the U.S. government. Can you talk to the institutionalization of reservation life at this point? And maybe how it plays in, frankly, to the battle for Yellowstone or the sense of, you know, who it belongs to. Absolutely. I thought it was really interesting when I found out in my research that basically in the same session that Congress gave Ferdinand Hayden $40,000 to go to Yellowstone, which was a lot of money in that time, uh, they passed a rider to an Indian Appropriations Act, basically saying that they were not going to engage in any treaty making with indigenous peoples from that point forward, which meant they were not going to recognize their sovereignty as Indian nations, as separate peoples with whom they could make a treaty. Mm -hmm. They would attempt to make peace agreements, but from this point forward, in order to push native people onto reservations, the US government was going to maybe make an effort at diplomacy, but then really quickly follow that with US military action. And that was a shift, that was something new. The US government had been making treaties first, for the most part, with native peoples. Uh, They were attempting to make treaties with them in order to bring peace to the West 
in order to make that place more amenable to white settlement. Often those treaties either did not get ratified or both Native people and the federal government broke them at various points, and the situation devolved into violence anyway. But this was a real change in the way that the U.S. government uh, was proposing to engage with Native peoples from this point on. So Sitting Bull uh, comes into the story of Yellowstone because he emerges during this period as one of the primary voices among the Lakota peoples uh, for self-determination and Indian sovereignty and resistance against not only the U.S. government, but also corporations, uh, particularly railroad builders like Jay Cook. So Sitting Bull's territory, Lakota territory, extended from the Missouri River to the Yellowstone Basin, and they really began to assert themselves under Sitting Bull's leadership in the early 1870s as Jay Cook was sending Northern Pacific surveyors out uh, to lay down track, to survey a route, um, the best route from the Great Lakes to the Pacific Coast, and they were having none of it. And Sitting Bull engaged in a number of different uh, responses to these efforts, including diplomacy and surveillance, but also attacks on Northern Pacific surveyors and their U.S. Army uh, protective details. This became an interesting story to me because it was part of Jay Cook's effort uh, and his engagement with Yellowstone to kind of promote it as a national park in order to promote his railroad. But he completely misread the situation uh, in the greater Yellowstone region and really did not anticipate any of this pushback from Sitting Bull and his people. And what I argue in the book is that this moment is really the beginning of the road to the Battle of Little Bighorn or Greasy Grass in 1876, that this is where Sitting Bull really emerges and starts to bring together an alliance of other Lakota peoples and Cheyenne and Arapaho peoples. You invoked climate change a bit earlier. And I think, of course, of the tragedy that has befallen Yellowstone recently, floods that have closed parts of the park, decimated some of the landscape. In a recent article, I think in Smithsonian, uh, you cite a study that shows climate change will impact Yellowstone pretty heavily. Uh, How so? Yes, indeed. I mean, and this is what is interesting, too, when we talk about the legacy of this moment and the passage of the Yellowstone Act in 1872, uh, which saved more than one million acres and created the first national park in the world. What that did is it preserved this kind of central core of the Yellowstone Basin. Um, And around that, the federal government then saved and built upon that area, which is now known as the Greater Yellowstone Ecosystem, which is, you know, the 2.2 million acres of the park with surrounding national forest land. And scientists have been able to use this place, which is one of the only intact temperate zone climates in the world, in order to do a lot of climate change studies. So this huge study came out uh, last summer, and what they have found is that with the warming trends that we're seeing, even with mitigation efforts in that region and in the United States and North America, uh, we're going to continue to see warmer and warmer temperatures. uh, And What this means for places like Yellowstone is we're going to see uh, snow only at higher elevations, more rain at lower elevations, and then snowpack melting earlier 
along with more rain in the spring. And this is exactly what we saw uh, this past May and June uh, with a very warm early June. And then the combination of spring rains plus an atmospheric river situation, which we've been seeing more and more in the Mountain West and the Pacific Northwest. And all of that rain came down so quickly on snowpack that was already melting. The rivers in Yellowstone were already high mm. and it created this massive flooding event, which today I think people were saying it was maybe a 500 year flood. Um, but what the climate study suggests is that we're actually gonna see more of these. Um, so we're gonna see this kind of glut of rain in the spring, but then increasing dryness through the rest of the year and a drought uh, through the rest of the year. And I know that Colorado residents are familiar uh, with this particular kind of shift. Well, before we go, we mentioned in the introduction that you grew up here in Colorado, attended Littleton High School in the Denver mm -hmm. suburbs. You spoke recently about your book uh, at the Tattered Cover, and we were actually in the audience for that when you shouted out one of your English teachers. Who was there? Marlis Farrell. And after the event, I asked her about you as a student. And, <laughs> and she recalled this moment. She and some other kids were helping the class review for a major exam, and they created a Jeopardy format that was hilarious. I mean, she always had a great sense of humor in everything that she did, even though she was very academic and, and very scholarly in her analysis of literature and characters and so forth. She loved posing questions to engage an audience and to create fun. This made me wonder if you think there's enough room in the study of history for humor. <laughs> Oh, well, I certainly hope so. That's a, that's such a wonderful thing for her to say. I love Mrs. Farrell. Yes, the, the book is dedicated to her and to Ann Moore, who is my history teacher at Littleton High School. And those two women really encouraged me in my writing and my thinking. And yes, and they are both extremely funny individuals oh. as well, which I, which I enjoy. So I like it when my historical figures, the people I'm writing about are funny. That, that allows me to engage with them and their senses of humor. It is hard, though, to make any kind of jokes about very serious topics, issues of racial justice and the sort of darker histories of places we might want to take a little bit more lightly. But I also think that we can understand the really complex and interesting histories of places like Yellowstone and continue to enjoy them. I know now all about these dark and complicated elements of Yellowstone's history, and yet I go there and I still revel in it. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you so much for having me. This has been great. Historian Megan Kate Nelson's latest book is Saving Yellowstone. She was a Pulitzer Prize finalist for her earlier release, The Three-Cornered War. Nelson grew up in Littleton. And that is Colorado Matters for today, with thanks to our team. Tyler Bender. Carl Bielek. Anthony Cotton. Pete Kramer. 
Andrea Dukakis, Rachel Estabrook, Michelle Fulcher, Matt Hers, Michael Hughes, Carla Jimenez, Pedro Lumbrano, Patrice Mondragon, Shane Rumsey, Chandra Thomas Whitfield. And I'm Ryan Warner. You can follow the show on Twitter at Colorado Matters. I'm at CPR Warner. Thanks for spending time with us. This is CPR News and KRCC.